to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, gang, welcome on back in to yet another edition of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Now, fans of this show may be aware by now that I, your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, I like to go on a rant once in a while, (laughs) pretty much every episode. But I'm going to try to hold it back this week, just a little bit, because I want to try to devote every possible second that I can to today's guest. This is someone I've wanted to have on the show since before there was even a show to have him on. And now certain anybody at all familiar with libertarians, (laughs) with the modern libertarian movement, has heard the phrase, End the Fed! It became a popular chant at Ron Paul rallies in 2008 and 2012 when he was running for president. Yeah, suddenly Ron Paul would be up there, he'd mention something about this thing called the Federal Reserve. Before you know it, you got thousands of college kids chanting, What the heck are these crazy kids talking about? (laughs) They are, of course, referring to their Federal Reserve, the Central Bank of the United States. But just what is the Federal Reserve, and why are so many people, so many libertarians specifically, that want to just end the darn thing? (laughs) I mentioned a few weeks ago that I wanted to do more history lessons on this show. We had Professor Carlo Celli on back in episode 17, an expert on El Ritorno Downing Benito Mussolini and his fascism. We had a great show with him. Be sure to check that out. Extremely informative. My guest today is about as big of an expert on the history of the Federal Reserve that you're going to find out there. He is a writer and documentary film producer. He has been a recipient of the Telly Award for Excellence in Television Production. He is president of American Media, a publishing and video production company based right here in Southern California. He is also the founder of Freedom Force International, a libertarian activist network. And he is the author of many, many books, including a favorite of mine that really opened my eyes to a lot of things, The Creature from Jekyll Island, A Second Look at the Federal Reserve, G. Edward Griffin, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Well, thank you, Mark. Thanks for inviting me. And thanks for having on. Like I told you before the show, I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. Now, Mr. Griffin, I'd like to really focus today on the topic of your book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, A Second Look at the Federal Reserve. But first, I'd like to just get a little bit of an idea of your history and how you first became an activist. Now, I know you ran for president back in 1968 with the American Independent Party and, of course, got on to write many books and produce many documentaries on a wide range of subjects. What was it that really got you started down this path in life? Why did you decide to dedicate your life and career to the pursuit of truth and knowledge? Well, Mark, that's a that's a hard question to answer because it, it didn't all happen at once. Like so many things in our lives, uh, things sort of creep along, and uh, you wind up in a, a destination where you never anticipated going in the first place. I started out a long, long time ago uh, wanting to become active in Hollywood productions. Can you believe that? I was trained as a young man in uh, television production and stage productions, communications, and all that kind of stuff. So I, I came out to the West Coast anticipating that that would be my career. Well, through a lot of bustles with reality, I found out that uh, there were people out <laughs> in Hollywood with much greater talent than mine who were uh, washing cars and waiting table and so forth. <laughs> so I, by this time, I had a little family to support, so I got serious and went to work in, in a real job and worked as an insurance underwriter and promotional expert and so forth. And then I, I began to read some books and attend public lectures on things relating to what was really going on in the world. 
and became very, very concerned. And so uh, I did the thing that my wife almost uh, died of a heart attack for. I, I quit my job, you know, and I decided I wanted to, to set the world straight. And she looked at me like I'd lost my mind. And, oh my gosh, <laughs> how could you do that? We had no idea where the next money was going to come from. But anyway, so I started to give public presentations, and I started a little one-tank operation producing uh, films and documentary film strips in those days we produced. And then I started to write a couple of books. And the first thing you know, as the years drifted by, I had created a little company called American Media. We still have it. That's what we hang our hat on in the morning when we come in. It's American Media. And so our little company publishes books and produces uh, documentary films. We produce audio recordings as well, relating to primarily to uh, important issues that have to do with geopolitics and health. So and that's what I do. I've written a couple of books along the way, one on the United Nations, one on the Supreme Court. <laughs> I never will forget that one. It was called um, The Great Prison Break, The Supreme Court Leads the Way. And it was all about the Warren Court and the way they made it almost impossible under the judicial system that they had been revamping to prosecute obvious criminals because of, you know, the rules had been broken in some way or another. And so I called it the, the Great Prison Break. And uh, boy, I spent a lot of time on that one. And, and it was supposed to be the engine that, that gets Earl Warren removed from the Supreme Court. So about a week, a week after the book was published, Earl Warren resigned. <laughs> it had nothing to do with my book, of course. Pure coincidence, of course. <laughs> Pure coincidence. But anyway, there, there went the market for my book. So I, I, don't, I just had to throw that in because it was kind of funny. But then I wrote a book on a cancer, a, a natural approach to the treatment of cancer. And probably my most well-known book was The uh, Creature from Jekyll Island which is a critical look at the Federal Reserve. So that's my career in a nutshell, and uh, it's kept me busy. And The Creature from Jekyll Island, you look at this book, and it's intimidating because it's huge. I mean, it looks like a textbook, but once you open it and start getting into it, I mean, it, it reads like a detective novel. It really sucks you in, kind of learning about how how these big financial people all came together to create the Federal Reserve System that we have today. Now, so why did you specifically decide to write The Creature from Jekyll Island? What was it that made you realize you needed to really focus on this specific institution, the Federal Reserve, and expose the history of how it was founded and what it really is? Well, Mark, I was drawn into that topic way back in the early days when I was producing these film strips, uh, very low-budget documentaries. I decided I wanted to produce one on the topic of inflation. And I didn't know much about it when I started. I thought, well, I, I knew that inflation was not some mysterious thing that happened because farmers raised their prices or businessmen raised their prices or labor unions raised their wages. Uh, those were all the results of something else, but I wasn't quite sure what it was. So I, I started to do my research then, and I never did produce that documentary, by the way, because other seemingly more important topics came along and I was drawn away from it. But some years later, I was asked to address a small group on the topic of taxes. And I said, well, I don't know much about taxes, but I do know about something called a hidden tax called inflation. Would you like me to give a talk on that? And they said, yes. So I pulled the boxes out with the research, got boned up on it again, and gave a talk. And it went over very well. People said, wow, that was interesting information. Now you should put that on the road. Well, you know, being basically an extrovert that I am, I thought, yeah, this is a good idea. I'll put this on the road. So I started to give speeches on the topic, and, and fortunately, they were well-received. And finally, I came to the point, though, where I decided I didn't know enough about it. 
because people were asking me questions at the end of the lecture. They said, well, you know, what should we do about this? We have so much money. Should we take it out of the bank? Should we put it in real estate? Should it be in gold or silver? What about insurance policies and so forth? And I was totally unqualified to answer questions like that. So I, I stopped giving those seminars on money, as they were called, and um, I enrolled in the College for Financial Planning which is a, a sort of a, well, it's a correspondence course, but it has high prestige for financial planners. And I got my certificate as a, a certified financial planner, and not because I wanted to do any financial planning, because that wasn't my goal. I just wanted to learn more about the, the real markets of the world. And uh, it was then that I realized that, okay, this topic is really fascinating. It's got a lot of meat in it. And so I decided then to write a book. That was the beginning of a seven-year project in which the book was finally assembled. So, you see, it was a long, convoluted path, and uh, I couldn't have guessed where I would wind up at any point along that journey. Well, sure, it's kind of like a, a rabbit hole. You stick your head in and you see one thing, and then you, you climb a little further in and find another thing, and next thing you know, you're pretty deep in there, and you found out <laughs> way more deep. than you I ever thought you would. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good analogy. And along the way, there are a lot of tunnels to the left and to the right and up and down. And you, you have to take, you have to make a choice. And then you wind up going in some direction you didn't anticipate. Now, many people don't realize that the Federal Reserve, our central bank today, is actually the fourth central bank in U.S. history. Obviously, we don't have all day because we, we could go on about the history of central banking for a long time. But can you give a very brief history of central banking in the United States? How do we get to that point before the Federal Reserve was created? Yeah, it's, it's hard to condense, but it can be done. We just have to first understand what a central bank is. It's a code name. It doesn't mean anything by itself. Technically, it, it may be central, all right, but it's certainly not a bank. And the Federal Reserve System is a central bank, but uh, it's not federal either. And it has no reserves. So you see, anytime you talk about this thing, you're talking about using words that are deceptive. They create impressions in the mind, mm -hmm. but they don't really have that substance behind them. So a central bank really, by proper definition, is a cartel. It's a cartel of commercial banks that have come together, and they've gone into partnership with the government, whatever nation that they were talking about. And the government, is, as the partner, gives this group of banks the monopoly over the creation of the money supply. Now, the money is created, and everybody thinks it's government money. It looks like government money. And in the case of the United States, it has the word United States on it. But then it says Federal Reserve Note. And that's the giveaway. It's not the money of the United States. It's money of the United States Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve is a banking cartel. The fourth time around, they succeeded again. Now we call it the Federal Reserve System, but in essence, it's no different than any of the others, except that today, it's much larger, it has much more power, and in my view, is much more destructive than any of the others have been. Now, the title of your book is The Creature from Jekyll Island, and Jekyll Island was, of course, where all these major financial players had their meeting where they came up with this idea. Well, they already had the idea for, for quite a bit of time, but they came up with the specific plan for this Federal Reserve System that we have today. Can you set the scene for us? Who were the major players at Jekyll Island? How did they all come together to create this system? Well, that's a very interesting story, and it's the one that attracted me deeper into the topic because uh, the first thing you notice about the story is that the Federal Reserve System, or the, the charter for it, was drafted 
on Jekyll Island, not in Washington, D.C. And you say, well, what the heck is Jekyll Island? And why would they be someplace other than Washington, D.C.? It doesn't take very long. You find out that Jekyll Island is, is a real island. It's off the coast of Georgia. And it was a place back in 1910 where the super wealthy families had their cottages. They called them cottages. They were mansions, really. Where the families of the super wealthy went during the cold winter months. They would migrate down away from New York City. A lot of these people were on Wall Street. They were the major financiers. Some of them were major industrialists. And so they would move down from the Atlantic Northeast, and they'd go down to Georgia, a lot better climate down there in the wintertime, and they'd spend those winter months on Jekyll Island. And they had a very elaborate clubhouse there, and it was a private club, actually. The whole island was privately owned by this group, and it was called the Jekyll Island Club. And this is where the Federal Reserve System was actually created. And as you said, it was created by a small group, actually six men, all of whom were very prominent in the field of banking. They were the ones who eventually would become the movers and shakers of the Federal Reserve System. They would be the leaders or representatives of the leaders of the banking cartel that is generally called a central bank. And they met together and they traveled from New York down to Jekyll Island in Senator Aldrich's private railroad car. And they traveled for two nights and a day. And they got down to Jekyll Island over to that beautiful clubhouse. And they spent a week hammering out all the details of what eventually became the Federal Reserve Act. When they came back, it disappeared into the environs of Wall Street back in New York. And for quite a while thereafter, uh, these people denied that they ever went there. And the point I'm leading to is that this meeting was held under conditions of great secrecy. They denied that the meeting took place. They denied that they went to it. They arrived at that railroad station under orders not to be seen together, not to dine together, to avoid newspaper reporters and all that sort of thing. They were told even once they got on board the private car of Nelson Aldrich, the Rockefeller Group was represented there, by the way. Once they got out Aldrich's car, they were instructed even in talking to each other not to use last names. <laughs> and that was to, you know, you'd say, why on earth would they bother such conditions of secrecy in the privacy of this railroad car? And a private railroad car at that. And one of the men wrote about it in later years. And in his book, he said, the reason we did that is because we didn't want the servants on board the train to know who all of us were by name. They knew who one or two of us were, but they didn't know all of us together, and we didn't want them talking about this and running the risk of having that information leak out into the public. So uh, you could go on and on and on with all of the elements of secrecy, but there's no question that most of the major wars of history were plotted under conditions of less secrecy than this meeting. And so any uh, casual student of this has to come to the question, why? Why such secrecy? And finally, you do come to the answer. And the answer was, again, provided by one of the members himself who wrote an article that appeared in the Saturday Evening Post a few years later when finally the, the cat was out of the bag. And everybody thought of the Federal Reserve by this time had already been passed into law, and they thought of it as a great American institution. And only then did these people begin to talk openly about the fact that, yes, there was a meeting, yes, they participated in it, and yes, they were very important in it. And one of those men wrote an article, and in this article he said 
But the reason for asking people to use first names only is because they didn't want the servants to know. And then he said, furthermore, had it been discovered and been widely known that the Federal Reserve Act was written by our particular group, there would be no chance at all of its passage through Congress. And there you have the reason for the secrecy. Because, you see, the Federal Reserve Act was supposed to be an act of Congress to control those big, bad bankers in New York. Hmm. And here, if the truth had been known, the act itself was written by the very same bankers that it was supposed to control. And all of a sudden, you realize, aha, I get it. The cartel wrote the rules of its own regulation, which cartels do. The rules were to really make it profitable for the members of the banking cartel to operate without competition. And they brought the government into partnership with it so that all banks would have to follow the rules of the cartel. And therein lies the, the ugly little secret of the Federal Reserve is that it's not a government agency at all. It's a private banking cartel that got Congress to take its cartel agreement and pass it into law. So now that every American must conform to the cartel agreement or go to jail. And there was very little resistance in Congress to the passage of this law. Was there not or was there any kind of public outcry at the time? Were there any concerned politicians or citizens that were speaking out against the central bank or did it pretty much just fly by the night and no one really noticed? Well, a little bit of both actually is true. There were a few voices that spoke out against it. A couple of congressmen, Senator William Jennings Bryant was opposed to it at first, and they kind of bought him off. A little bit of deception there and a little bit of bribery. Wilson promised to make him Secretary of State and so forth. There wasn't much opposition, not any organized opposition against it in Congress or the Senate, because primarily I think, well, two reasons. The main one being that these politicians were not well informed about banking. They didn't understand how banking really works. It was a field that was foreign to them, as it still is, by the way. If you were to ask any congressman or senator today about how the banking system works, you would probably get some pretty good blank stares. They'd say, well, I'll, I'll turn this question over to my staff. <laughs> you know, they really don't understand it and didn't in those days. And secondly, a lot of them knew that they didn't want to cross swords with the big banks because the banks were very influential then even, and even more so now, influential throughout industry. And they knew that if you cross swords with the bank, your companies, the people who supported you, would suddenly find that their credit at the bank was being squeezed or that the uh, advertising in the newspapers that supported you would be withdrawn. And the first thing you know, you'd be denied of financial support and you'd be denied of media support if you crossed swords with the banks. And so a lot of politicians were really hesitant to take a strong stand against the Federal Reserve System. That was a reality in 1913, and it's certainly even a bigger reality today. We will be back after a little break. Senator Rand Paul offered his rebuttal to the State of the Union just a week ago, and since then has been touring the country talking about an idea known as the Economic Freedom Zone. I'm Ben Swan with your Truth in Media moment, sponsored in part by BenSwan.com. So what exactly is Senator Paul calling for? Well, here's specifically what he said. My plan is to create economic freedom zones in distressed areas all over the country, including my home state of Kentucky, which will leave more money in the hands of the people who earn it. 
in economic freedom zones will cut income and business taxes to a single flat rate of 5%. We'll cut payroll taxes for employers and employees, so folks will go home with more money in their paychecks. Burdensome, job-killing regulations will be removed, and business will expand. Economic freedom zones won't pick winners and losers. The money will go to businesses that consumers have already voted for. So the economic freedom zone sounds like a pretty good idea. The only problem is the very last thing the senator says there about the zones not picking winners and losers. And that is not entirely true. I'll tell you why after this. The destruction of constitutional liberties and endless foreign wars. The voice of the people silenced while lawmakers simply enrich themselves and the political class. I'm Ben Swan. It isn't about left versus right. No, the real fight is liberty versus tyranny. At BenSwan.com, we are breaking the left-right paradigm. We know that the American two-party system is broken and that to restore American liberty means to restore your rights as an individual. At BenSwan.com, we cover stories the national media won't touch, from the National Defense Authorization Act to nullification, militarization of police, and crony capitalism. We are the face of new media. BenSwan.com, where humanity is greater than politics. When Senator Rand Paul calls for an economic freedom zone, look, I understand what the senator is trying to do. Create micro-laboratories where the power of low taxes, school choice, and economic freedom can thrive. But consider this. Most cities that suffer from economic hardships do so not just because of overtaxation and limits on opportunity, though that's included, but also because of much bigger problems. Problems like high crime corrupt local government, and a whole host of issues that would actually prevent people from picking up their families and moving to these areas simply for lower payroll and income taxes. But if picking cities like Detroit ultimately does not bring about economic growth because of all the other problems other than taxation, then freedom ideas are considered failing Ideas. Wouldn't it be better to call for an economic freedom zone called the United States of America? That's push for equality of opportunity for every American. You can check me out online for stories that affect your liberty at binswan.com, where humanity is greater than politics. Your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Now you mentioned how the founders of the Federal Reserve System set up whole bunch of different rules for that they could use and have at their disposal. And one thing you talk about in your book, and I'm hoping you can describe a little bit further for us, is something called the Mandrake Mechanism. Or it's not called that, that's what you refer to it as. Can you describe just yeah. what the Mandrake Mechanism is? Yeah, that's the name I gave it for the process by which the Federal Reserve creates money. And I named it the Mandrake Mechanism after a comic book character that was very popular when I was a boy, Mandrake the Magician. And if you're a comic book collector, I understand if you can get hold of an original copy of one of those a comic books, they're quite valuable today. Anyway, Mandrake the Magician was a, quite a guy. He was a fighter for truth and justice, and he had a big cape, and he was truly magical. He could wave his cape and bring things into existence right before your very eyes, wave it again, and it would disappear. And I thought, boy, that ability to create and then to uncreate is exactly what we're talking about. And we're talking about the ability to create money and extinguish money through the Federal Reserve. So I named it the Mandrake Mechanism. And basically, it's just a process by which I think we'd all be better off if they would teach this in school so people would understand how our money comes into existence. 
And so that's what it is, and I don't want to take too much time with it because we could talk perhaps an hour just about that alone. In essence, what we're really looking at is a technical way in which the banks literally just create money out of nothing and convert it into spendable money through credit, through loans, and push it into the system through the banks themselves. That's a means of creating the money that the banks loan. See, in the old days, the banks had to depend on deposits to loan money. If you deposited $1,000 into the bank, it would be gold or silver, and it would be finite, something that couldn't just be created out of nothing. It took human labor to create. That was real money in those days. It's still real money today, but people don't think of it that way. Anyway, in the old days, when people put $1,000 worth of gold or silver into the bank as a deposit, well, then the banks could lend out $1,000. And, well, they started to lend out more than $1,000, even though it was unethical to do so, because they told everybody when they put their money in that it was a demand deposit meaning that that money was theirs and they could demand it at any time. And what they didn't really make very clear is that the minute they put it into the bank, they turned it around and loaned it out to somebody. So obviously if the original depositor came back the next day and demanded his money back, he couldn't get it, could he? Because it had been loaned out to somebody else. So that was that's the basic fraud in the banking system is that they lead people to believe that that's their money, it's on demand, and they can take it out any time they want. Well, that's not true today. They drafted the rules that gave their own organization, their own cartel, the ability to create money out of nothing so they could legally loan more than they had. And so the rules generally for a long period of time have been that if you've got $1,000 on deposit in a bank today, you can loan an additional $9,000. And so you've now created $10,000 based on the foundation of an original $1,000. And they just create that money out of nothing, and they put it into your checkbook or into your into your bank account electronically, and you can go out and spend $9,000 more than ever existed before because somebody put $1,000 into the bank. So basically, that's it, and all of a sudden, you've got this great ballooning effect of money created literally out of nothing. Well, I shouldn't say nothing because it's even worse than nothing. It's created out of debt. It's an IOU. All of the money that's in circulation today, if you could really read its history, if there were fine print on it somewhere, you could see how did this money come into existence, it would say, I came into existence because somebody borrowed me. And that is how money does come into existence through the present Federal Reserve System. And so you can imagine the ballooning effect. The government keeps spending more and more money that it doesn't have, and the Federal Reserve System creates that money for it. And so then the federal government puts that money into circulation. It pays its contractors, its politicians, its welfare recipients, and so forth. And it goes out into the economy. And those people put that money into the commercial banks. And then the commercial banks leverage that up 10 times more. And you can just see why and how the money supply of the United States keeps expanding and expanding. And that is why the purchasing power of that money keeps going down and down. And now we're back to where we began which is that documentary that never got produced on the cause of inflation. And Mr. Griffin, one of the issues that first brought me into the liberty movement was my opposition to foreign wars. I've been a big anti-war guy for a long time. Can you kind of describe the connection between the Federal Reserve and foreign wars? You know, a lot of people might be thinking, 
Yeah, I like doing my anti-war activism. I don't really care about all this Fed stuff, this this Mandrake mechanism thing. I don't, I don't really, I'm not really interested in that. Can you describe why it's so important for anti-war activists to also still focus on the Federal Reserve? What is the connection there? Well, the connection is the money. Wars are expensive. I mean, everybody understands that. But those who are opposed to wars, regardless of the reason for their opposition, seldom question, who's paying for this? Well, they know that the public has to pay for it. But if you didn't have a central bank, if you didn't have something like the Federal Reserve, which could create that money out of nothing, anytime the government needs another trillion dollars to fight a war, today you can just create it out of nothing and it's got it. And the people pay it through inflation and not even realize that that's how they're being taxed for it. If you didn't have that mechanism, then how would governments pay for their wars? Well, they'd have to go to the people, and they'd have to sell bonds. They'd have to borrow the money from the people who patriotically would lend them the money. Or, you know, they would have to raise taxes. Uh, well, raising taxes is not a very popular thing to do. And then politicians and, and royalty, for that matter, who raise taxes beyond a certain level, historically it's about 40% of the total product of the nation, once they start bumping around 40%, uh, the kings tend to be overthrown, the politicians tend to be unelected, and the whole thing falls apart. And so therefore, professionals in the political field know instinctively and historically that they must keep taxes below that 40% level if they want to keep their jobs. So how do they get the money to pay for these fantastically expensive wars? Well, the Federal Reserve is the convenient answer. We just don't even worry about how much it costs. We just go to our buddies, our partners at the Federal Reserve, and say, well, we need another $5 trillion today. The Federal Reserve issues the Federal Reserve notes in return for bonds from the government, and voila, they've got $5 trillion of U.S. money that pay soldiers and military contractors and all of the rest. So, if you want to put an end to war, one way to do that is to stop making it so easy to finance. Why do you think that your book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, A Second Look at the Federal Reserve, why do you think this book was able to receive so much mainstream attention where many other books had been written on the Federal Reserve and largely ignored? How were you able to break through? Well, that's a good question. It's, it's kind of a mystery to me. There have been a lot of very good books written on the topic. I hope I've read them all, and I've enjoyed them all. I learned a lot from them. They were a, a, sort of a springing pad for me to jump from uh, in my own research. Uh, but you're quite right. Most of them remain relatively unread. Uh, they sit uh, gathering dust in the library. Uh, I don't know why mine was... Uh, able to break through and it's been an amazing story i'm amazed every time we have another printing i was just told today by my warehouse manager that we need another printing which will put it at about number 37 i think we're in the fifth edition and soon to hit a sixth edition so how do you explain that i don't know perhaps it's because i decided from the beginning that the, the real story here was not in the technicalities of what are the you know, the discount ratios. What is the ratio between a deposit and a credit? How did they work this 
How does the discount window work? How many members are on the Federal Reserve Board? How are they appointed? All of these technical questions I decided are perhaps important, but not very interesting. Mm. I thought the real story was in the human drama that was being played out because of it. I looked at this as a whodunit. To me, this is a crime. This is perhaps one of the greatest crimes of all history, of how a partnership of political scientists and monetary scientists can join together and use banking and government to legally plunder the population without the population even knowing it. And therefore, if they don't know about it, they can't complain about it. And I thought that, to me, was a great crime. And so I saw it as a crime, and I decided to write it as a whodunit. How did they do it? Where did they bury the body? How did they disguise their actions? So that was kind of my approach. That's how I saw the story, and I wrote it that way. And perhaps that's the reason it was able to break through when others had not. It's probably one of the reasons I was able to read this whole book that looks so intimidating when I first got it. But it really does read, like you said, like a whodunit, a mystery novel. It really does suck you in. And then when you realize it's not a novel, this is really what happened. It really does blow your mind. One last question, Mr. Griffin. I'm just curious. How do you see this central bank, the Federal Reserve System, how do you see this all playing out? Do you think the system is just eventually going to collapse on itself, or do you think maybe enough people can become aware, thanks to people like you, people like Ron Paul, that have been talking about it so much in the public eye? Will there be maybe a political solution to ending it? What do you think? Well, I don't think that any power structure like this ever just quits. It has to be pushed. They never give up. It's too uh, too powerful. It's too profitable. The wine is too heady for the party goers just to voluntarily give it up. The Federal Reserve will have to be abolished. Well, what's it going to take before that happens? First of all, is it possible? Of course, it's possible. The Federal Reserve was created by Congress. It can be abolished by Congress. But that means simply that uh, the congressmen, or a couple hundred of them, a couple hundred men and women have to decide they don't want the Federal Reserve anymore. Is that impossible? No, it's not. But it certainly is difficult because just like in the days of the creation of the Federal Reserve back in 1910, congressmen and senators know that for them, the cross swords with this institution is likely to be political suicide for them. And uh, you can see that in the current movements uh, led so ably by Congressman Ron Paul to try and, first of all, abolish the Fed. Well, nobody wanted to go that far. They kind of ignored him. And so then he suggested, well, how about just an audit of the Fed? Oh, well, that's good. An audit of the Fed, that sounds like we're not going to go anywhere. We just get some committee that will be beholden to the banks that will do an investigation of this thing, take a couple of years, and then they'll come up with a big fat report, and then it'll be a whitewash. You know, they say, well, nothing wrong there. Well, maybe this shouldn't have happened. Maybe there was a little, a little deceit there. But basically, it's a good institution, and now we're strengthened it. You know, that's what it, that's what these investigations usually wind up. And if you doubt that, just take a look at the Warren Commission report on the JFK assassination or the 9-11 Commission report on 9-11. And you, you can pretty much see how these investigative committees work out. They're highly, highly political and they're designed from the very beginning to protect those in power from any exposure of wrongdoing rather than to expose them. So anyway, that was my feeling, and my view still is, on an audit of the Fed. But nevertheless, even though Ron Paul got a lot of support in the initial stages of an audit of the Fed, which sounded pretty harmless, when push came to shove, when it was time to actually pass the legislation 
about half of those people who came on board originally said they would support the bill. In fact, more than half. They backed off at the last minute and changed their minds. They don't want to touch this hot wire because they know that there's high voltage there. So the reason I'm saying that is that it's clear to me the present group that's in Washington, that group is not going to abolish the Federal Reserve. We have to replace those people with new individuals who come on board precisely because they want to abolish the Federal Reserve. They are coming on board not because they want the financial support of the banking institutions or the large corporations, which are really beholden to the banking institutions. They're coming on board because they're produced by the grassroots. They're produced by the people back home who are fed up with this stuff. And they're not going there to feather their nests, but to restore the republic. When that happens, then it'll be an easy matter to abolish the Fed. But now the next step is what happens when the legislation is proposed to abolish the Fed. What happens when it actually passes through Congress? Well, now the fun just begins because we know that the banks are not going to let go easily. They'll do everything possible to ruin the economy and then blame it on those who wanted to abolish the Fed. That actually happened in Jackson's time. It was a guy by the name of Biddle, the president of the central bank at that time, was uh, Nicholas Biddle. And when Jackson threatened to abolish the central bank, he deliberately began to contract the credit in the nation, which caused unemployment. It caused business failure. It started to destroy the economy. And he did that deliberately so that he could say, you see, you see, you tamper with the central bank. Look what it's doing to the economy. And he almost got away with it, except that it was almost a fluke that one of the major newspapers picked up the truth and published it in an editorial page that was then republished in other major newspapers. And unexpectedly, in those days we had a fairly honest and open press, unexpectedly the truth got out and the people were angry that Nicholas Biddle was actually causing the economic crisis and it wasn't Jackson at all. And it was that critical and almost accidental discovery of the truth that prevented this nefarious scheme from working. Well, today, you can be sure the same type of thing would happen, and I'm not so sure that the media, as uh, as beholden as it is today to the financial interests, I'm not so sure that we could rely on the media to tell the truth. And so we could look for a, one heck of a battle, all kinds of stresses and strains on the economy and on public confidence of the banking system, public confidence of the, of the political system. It could be almost revolutionary. In other words, rough water ahead. Out of all of that, we have to know that it can be done. And in my view, it must be done. Because in my view, if we do not abolish the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve will abolish America. We will be back after a little break. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at theplacetobenation.com, your pop culture home. Do your kids want to meet the champion of the Constitution? What if there was an illustrated book that introduced libertarianism to you through the story of Ron Paul's amazing life? What if this biography breaks down complex concepts like Austrian economic theory, the dangers of the Federal Reserve, blowback and a non-interventionist foreign policy what if i told you this book is real and available what if i told you that school libraries accept donations what if you donate a copy to your local school library and give hundreds of youth the opportunity to meet ron paul what if you don't who will get your copy today at meetronpaul.com also available on amazon 
As Ron Paul has said, there can be no revolution without a revolution in education. Visit meetronpaul.com. Keep the liberty movement moving. Agree to disagree. Yeah, it's a radio show we have on thenewamericanmedia.com every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific. Join the show. What do we talk about? Politics, religion, and spirituality. Basically anything you're not supposed to talk about in a bar. <laughs> you're not supposed to have these conversations inside of a bar, but we have them every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific on thenewamericanmedia.com. Join the show, offer your opinion, and let's agree to disagree, but let's have a good conversation. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. In my view, if we do not abolish the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve will abolish America. That's a money quote, Mr. Griffin. It will abolish us if we don't abolish it. Gee, Edward Griffin, thank you so much for coming on the Lions of Liberty podcast today. Before you go, can you just let everybody out there know where they can find everything you're doing, all your current projects, your writing, your videos, and the whole deal? Well, thanks for that, Mark. Yes, we have two major sites. One is our commercial site where we sell things. We've got over 100 books and documentary films and audio recordings on this type of topic, and that's called Reality Zone. So you'll find us at realityzone.com. And then we have a think tank site where we have nothing to sell except ideas and history and ideology, and that's called Freedom Force international.org. It's an organization. You might like it. If you want to make a difference and, and not just complain about what's going on and actually become part of the solution, you'll find it there at freedomforceinternational.org. And while you're at those sites, if you'd like to get a free subscription to our newsletter where you get our views on what's happening in the world today and how it relates to all of these issues, you can do that at either site, but or just look us up on the Internet for unfiltered news, unfilterednews.com. And that's a product of Reality Zone, so it's easy to find. And as I said, it's a free subscription, and you'll get that in your email box every Friday afternoon. G. Edward Griffin, everybody, thank you so much once again for coming on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Mark, thanks for inviting me, and uh, keep up the good work. Great. Thanks a lot. Take care. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed my interview today with G. Edward Griffin. And as you can tell by now, he is an extremely knowledgeable man, especially on the subject of the Federal Reserve System. I know the subject is an important one. It's something that keeps coming up, like I said earlier. And the Fed! And the Fed! We hear it all the time. But until we really understand what the Fed is, what the Federal Reserve is, and can explain that to other people, it's really just a meaningless phrase. And people hearing it aren't going to really think much of it. They're going to think you mean, end the federal government, end it all. And maybe we want to do that too, I don't know. But baby steps, guys. Now there's a reason that this keeps coming up, this Federal Reserve System, in all our conversations. There's a really good reason. That's because we all use Federal Reserve notes. We all use this thing called the U.S. dollar. We get paid in dollars. We spend dollars. We pay our taxes in dollars. Now, this is not because U.S. Federal Reserve notes, as they are called, I'm doing air quotes, by the way, for those trying to follow along at home. This is not because U.S. Federal Reserve notes emerge on the marketplace, you know, as a solid, useful medium of exchange. 
Now, this is because the Federal Reserve has been granted a legal monopoly on the money supply. They are, as Mr. Griffin correctly pointed out, a cartel, which has sole control over the value of the money that we use every single day. And the track record isn't great, folks. The U.S. dollar has lost over 96% of its purchasing power since the Federal Reserve was first founded over 100 years ago. You know, as with anything, the system will not change until people first begin to really understand it. People aren't going to go opposing things that they don't even know exists or know how it operates. And I hope that my interview here with Mr. Griffin today will at least play a small role in helping people to understand the Federal Reserve System, help you discuss it with others. That's what we're all about here at Lions of Liberty. At our website, lionsofliberty.com, be sure to keep checking us out, where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty daily. And be sure to keep track of us on social media. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash lionsofliberty. Find us over on Twitter, at lionsofliberty. Look us up on Google+, we're there too. And of course, do not forget to subscribe to this very podcast, the Lions of Liberty podcast. You can search it and subscribe to it over on iTunes or using the Stitcher radio app. And we highly recommend doing that. And please, if you subscribe on iTunes particularly, please do us a favor. Go give us a rating. Go post a comment over there. That'll really help other people find out about the Lions of Liberty podcast and get even more people involved in this discussion. Because honestly, this stuff is pointless if we're just going to talk to ourselves, talk to each other. That's why I turned on the microphone one day. I was already having these conversations in my everyday life, so I may as well record them and blast them out here on the internet. And luckily for me, I was able to find some really great guests to help us along the way, because I don't know if anybody really needs to hear me for a half hour, 40 minutes every week. As long as you guys keep coming by and keep listening... I will keep getting some great guests on, and I will keep putting out these podcasts every week, every Thursday. Remember, that is the new schedule that I am pledging to stick to every single Thursday here at lionsofliberty.com. You will have a new episode of the Lions of Liberty podcast, and we're going to keep doing it next week, so be sure to come on back. And until then, don't forget, guys, do me a favor, live long and live free. Mastering is John Dobbert.